Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Tom Morgan, Director of Communications and Content at the KCP Group, Stiefel. He was referred to by one other podcast host as the most interesting person in finance, and after reading lots of his work to prepare for our talk, I am inclined to agree. We're going to do something completely new on the show today, and we're going to examine how to live a meaningful life using Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey as a template. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for that ludicrously generous uh, introduction. Yeah, so I almost wore my Liverpool shirt today. It was dirty, but, uh, you know, I, I the the thought was there. So the thought the thought was absolutely there. I didn't have a soccer team a few years ago, and I went. I, I spoke to people in the know, and I was like, "Look, what what's what's the team that fits my personality?" And Liverpool was the answer that came back again and again. So I, I became a fan. I mean, that reflects incredibly well on both your judgment and your personality because they are the most entertaining team in world football, uh, and that is objective. Uh, that is not an opinion. Sure. Well, I, um, I I had to have people analogize it to various baseball teams, and I'm a big Cardinals fan. I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, and it has been uh, it has been made known to me that Liverpool are the Cardinals uh, of of soccer, and so here we find ourselves two Liverpool fans about to have a great conversation about meaning. So, Tom, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, you know, we we find ourselves in a period of unprecedented material wealth. You know, we know that we now produce enough calories for everyone in the world to have 2,000 a day. Uh, the global middle class has never been more robust. Access to clean drinking water has never been better. And yet it is simultaneously a period of great psychological impoverishment. Uh, for the first peacetime in history, history uh, life expectancy in the U.S. is shrinking. And much of this owes to deaths of despair, things like suicide and overdose and, and drug use. Uh, we know that uh, from from some of your writing, you you cited a study that said that 42% of adults exhibited symptoms of anxiety and depression last year, and the percentage of American high school students who experience persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness has risen from 26% just a few years ago to 44% today. So you're a student of myth and meaning and how we create meaning, and I guess I'm just wondering where does personal myth-making have a place in sort of uh, ameliorating some of this psychological crisis of modernity that we that we find ourselves in? Yeah, I, I've spent the last few years being kind of obsessed with myth. And the way I'd put it, it myth is like the most annoying word. And part of my, my, part of my big issue with this is that maybe we should use legends, but like anything that you use to describe this concept always sounds like something you just made up. Whereas actually it's completely the opposite. And the kind of the idea that I, I, I that is sort of the foundation of all my work is, is where is your attention going, but why is it going there? And how much control do you have over what you're interested in? And let, let me give you an example. And uh, so like our exploratory attention, something we can go into in a minute, 
is um, is constantly scanning our environment for things that are salient to us from like an evolutionary perspective. Uh, so if you're walking through a jungle and it sees a, a patch of leaves that look like um, a, a tiger, uh, you will you will suddenly turn and face your head to it. And in in the way that we take our, take on stories, it's actually kind of the same way that we're drawn to narratives that download highly relevant information to us or show us ways that we might be going wrong in life. And, uh, you know, the, the the story that I've become obsessed with is Campbell's Hero's Journey because it's the OG myth because it encodes the most important amount of information. And it's a myth that actually, I think, tells us where we've gone wrong at the moment and why even though we have all these obvious visible things, it's the invisible things we don't have that matter. So you say we're always sort of scanning the environment, you know, the tiger leaves um, scenario. We're scanning the environment for things that are relevant, sort of germane to our situation. When we look at some of those stats I cited about the increase in hopelessness and and people being increasingly reliant on, on, uh, you know, on substances and things like this to sort of get through the day, how does that overlay with what you're talking about there? Are we are we getting the wrong messages? Are we consuming the wrong messages as we move through the world? So let's let's take it into another tangible example. Um, so one of my favorite ones was is kind of stolen from Michael Moberson, where he talks about ants. Um, and ants, when they find a food find a food source, will lay a pheromone trail to that food source so all the other ants can find where it is. And you quickly get one of those ant trails running to the, you know, the, the, the piece of bread you left on your patio floor. But what happens is, is that other ants will randomly peel off that path to go and find new food source, even if there's plenty of food at that destination. And what they found was the rate at which ants peel off the path is directly proportional to the instability of the environment. So what happens is, is that the more the environment around the ants deteriorates, the faster they move into exploration mode. And this makes like perfect sense, right? Like if you're, if you're likely to get stuck with only one piece of food, you're in real trouble, right? If your environment is unstable. But the question I always ask is, all right, so like what's going on in that ant's head, right? Like what is it in them that makes them move from exploit to explore? And I think if you... If you're willing to extend the analogy to humans, I think we have two basic drives in us, one of which is exploit and one of which is explore. And at the moment, exploit could not be better. We have everything we need, everything, right? From a, from a very privileged Western perspective, right? In terms of all the calories you need, healthcare, yada, yada, right? But we have this nagging sense in us that our environment is becoming unstable. And actually, like, it is becoming unstable because we're making it unstable. We're destroying our ecosystem. We're destroying our own personal lives. Everything around us is starting to deteriorate. But rather than us being drawn to go and find a new piece of food, we're being drawn to change the way that we relate to each other and to our environment. But that manifests in this like nagging dissonance where it's like something's not here in my life. Something's not right with the world around me. And I feel that like our youngest kids are really picking up on this now in a way that they can't necessarily articulate. But the mental health epidemic for me is one of like, like many, many, many signals that we, we know something's not right in our environment and we're being driven to address that, but we don't always know how to do that. 
So I love this. I, I loved the, your piece, Our Invisible War. Everyone go check out Our Invisible War because it talks about this, this ant behavior and the explore voices, uh, versus exploit thing, which really uh, trips something in me. That's a framework that I'm going to use a, a lot going forward. So you say we've done a great job of exploiting, right? We're sort of fat, rich, and and well, not happy, but we're at least, you know, we're at least fat and rich, right? And we've done a great job of exploiting the environment, the economy, all these things, but there's still this thing, this ineffable thing, this thing that we can't quite speak or put our hands on that's making us unhappy. Now let's tie, let's tie the ants to Joseph Campbell now, right? Um, the, the first step in the hero's journey, this framework that we'll be using a lot, uh, is this call to adventure. Is this, is this uh, the, the explore piece of it? And are we not answering the call to adventure? Is that part of why we're so, we're so sad? Uh, this is precisely it. This is like precisely, this is why I'm so obsessed with it. Because if it's a coincidence that all this stuff matches together, it would be a hell of a coincidence, right? So like the call to it, the call to adventure, the hero starts in stasis, right? Like, look, I've got all this food, I've got all this, all this money, right? Like, why aren't I happy? Stasis, boredom, a lack of interest in things around them, a lack of exploratory interest, right? And suddenly they get this call, which is like. You know, it's uh, it's Princess Leia with the message in Star Wars. It's literally a call to adventure in Frozen. In Interstellar, it's the coordinates to NASA. But these are always accompanied with their environment deteriorating somehow, them getting forced out of the nest but in whatever reason it is. And this call to adventure, often a big motif in Campbell, is the refusal of the call, which is, dude... I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly comfortable right now. And I don't even really know what this call is. I don't need it. And they go back and then something forces them out of the, uh, of the nest again. But I believe this call to adventure is literally what society is experiencing right now. Why? Okay. Two, two questions, right? Why aren't we answering that call? And can we all answer it? Right? Cause like I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, there's all kinds of adventures I'd like to go on. I got my two guitars behind me. I'd love to you know, shave a mohawk and grab, grab my ax and go start a band and quit this, you know, quit my W2 employment. But it's like, I got three kids, I got bills to pay. I think many of us feel this call to adventure, but there's sort of a practical voice that tells you to, you know, shut up and get paid every two weeks. Why, why don't we answer that call to adventure? You are literally expressing the explore, exploit dissonance, right? <laughs> You're saying, right, dude, there's a, there's a voice in you that's like, Dude, just just clip that check, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not denigrating that voice. That voice can often be right. Like if it, if everything's great in your life, and this is only a tiny nagging distance mm -hmm. that maybe you should have been a rock star at, at 14, mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't be following that bliss, right? But I think the call to adventure parallel works really well, which is that that everyone listening to this in finance, where or whatever it is, right, where that job has gone dry. They know what I'm talking about on a very visceral level, right? Which is like you've been going to work for the last four years. And you've not been interested in it for a long time. And it just, you feel like you're running Groundhog Day every single day. And the longer you try to play that game, the more your life is going to blow out and you're going to get psychosomatic ailments. You're going to start trying to numb the call with booze or something worse, right? That dissonance process just gets wider and wider and wider. But it's also, to your point, it's also super easy for someone to say, oh, just follow your bliss. And my wife takes major issue with that phrasing because it, it sounds like just, yeah, just pick the guitar up and go and try and be a rock star again. Mm. And I, I don't think that that's what's being talked about. I think actually, like, the reason why the hero's journey is for heroes 
is because it takes often a radical amount of sacrifice that in order to go and explore a new fitness peak, you have to sacrifice your salary, your stability, you know, maybe even your psychological health. You have to commit to these long periods of like liminal agony where you're experimenting with new identities. So like I, I always feel that like the phrase follow your bliss from Campbell trivializes the difficulty of what this is about because it is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. But the only thing that's worse is sticking around and dying at the top of a fitness peak. Yeah, you know, I think the existentialist philosophers are wise here. You know, Kierkegaard, my guy, talks about, you know, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And in, in a real sense, we wake up every day with sort of limitless potential. I could I could shave the mohawk. I could pick up the guitar and, and try and, you know, start the band or try and be a painter or, or a hundred different things. But I think we sort of comfort ourselves with, oh, no, I have to do this. You know, I have to do this to be responsible because if we truly embraced all the different directions our lives could go, it's a little overwhelming. But we also know from Dan Gilbert, right? Dan Gilbert has this great piece where he's sort of a happiness researcher. And he talks about how good we are at anticipating what makes us physically happy and how poor we are at anticipating what makes us psychologically happy. And he gives the example of, you know, there's no liver and onions flavored ice cream because we can just hear liver and onion flavored ice cream and go, ooh, yuck, like that that's would be disgusting. And yet when we anticipate the things that will make us psychologically happy, we think it's whatever, a big house or a Ferrari or a hundred different things. And it's not those things. And we bear that out time and time again. So sort of riffing off the wisdom of your wife if this isn't follow your bliss, what is it? And and how do we know which dreams are worth heroic pursuit? I mean, it's just that, that sort of, that's the question, right? But the, the interesting thing is there's an answer. You know, Campbell talks about being stuck in a labyrinth and the way out of the labyrinth is to follow Ariadne's thread, uh, referencing the legend. And Ariadne's thread for him was your interests. And we're back to the same profile, right? So Dan Gilbert is like, you know what you're going to need from like the, the basic end of Maslow's hierarchy, right? You know that if you're not starving, you're going to be happier. You know that if you have decent shelter, you're going to be happier. Mm. And meeting those needs is important, right? Like I'm not saying money is not important, right? Like you've got to get to that minimum level. But once you're at that minimum level, you're inc we're incredibly bad to your point at working out how to structure our lives. And that's basically because the exploit instinct very narrow consciousness tends to take control, which is a longer topic we can talk about, but it, the, the exploit instinct sets narrow goals. And it basically says, if you're an MD by the age of 35 and earning a million dollars, you're going to be happy. And then when you get to that point, you're like, okay, I've achieved that. Why am I not happy? Or why am I only happy for like a week, right? And it's kind of obvious that evolution is, is a flow. Life is a flow. Everything in your entire existence is flowing evolution is never, ever going to reward you for a static achievement, right? Like, it's never going to be like, oh, you've made it. You can just spend the rest of your life making it. Cool. It's going to keep you in some sort of perpetual movement. And so how do you choose? You follow life. And, and that sounds incredibly trite, and there aren't many non-trite ways of saying it. But if it is our exploratory attention that guides us as to when we need to move, it is also our exploratory attention that will help us understand what step to make to make to make next. 
there was a great podcast recently with Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Ken Stanley, an AI researcher, and he talked about how greatness cannot be pursued in this sort of Dan Gilbert way where you have narrow goals. In fact, greatness typically can only be pursued one stepping stone at a time. But your jump to each stepping stone is determined by what you find most interesting at any moment. So if you're super crazy lost, and I messed this up dramatically in my own life, right? If you're super crazy lost, don't say, where do I want to be three, three years from now? You're like, what is, what is taking my attention most right now in the moment? And the difficulty with this, there's lots of difficulties with it. One is that it involves you jumping to something where there's no clear end destination, where it might actually involve you picking up a guitar again, where like everyone around you looks at you and it's like, dude, you're 45 and you're picking up a guitar again. You're having some crazy midlife crisis. What's wrong with you, right? And, and you have to have an enormous amount of faith that that one step that you're making is the right one. Or you have to have the courage to make multiple steps and be wrong multiple times in order for you to keep making those explorations. And you basically have to have this incredibly fine somatic sense for what you're actually most interested in because your exploratory attention is, is controlled by your right hemisphere that is nonverbal. So basically, like it has to be this felt sense in your heart. This is what I'm most interested in right now. I'm going to orient myself towards it. It's not what does logic dictate that I'm most interested in. And I think as a society, speaking, you know, for myself as a fairly closed off dude, it's kind of hard for you to have access to that inner emotional sense where it's like, this is what I'm being physically pulled to right now. For the average person, is this going to be a vocation or an avocation? Because I think the a lot of when when we talk about things like this, people go, "Okay, I need to quit my job and you know build the startup that I've always dreamed of, or write my book." Or I think there's some very common sort of paths that this leads down. But for the average person, you know, the average American family is making whatever sixty thousand dollars a year, barely getting by, trying to send their kids to safe schools, put food on the table. But we all have these needs, right? We all have this sort of psychological itch to scratch. So for, for the average person, what does this look like practically, I guess, from a, from a work standpoint? I don't know, um, but I really don't. What I've realized, though, is that human flourishing seems to be determined by a few things, which is um, how low can you peak, uh, keep your peaks and troughs? Uh, in terms of, of your needs and how far you can climb up. So just to take a very trivial materialistic example, right? Like if you're earning a 500 grand a year salary and you need to sacrifice all of that to go and be a photographer to follow your bliss, right? Like that's a huge peak to get down off, right? But if you've got very modest living expenses, that sacrifice hits you a lot less hard. There is also sort of, to your point, a cutoff line of privilege. Whereas like if you do have kids and you do have responsibilities, people don't have the option of doing that. But what I would say to that is that there's a line from Carl Jung that tortures me, which is um, there's no greater burden a child can bear than the unlived life of the parent. Mm. Right? And I think a lot of people in our position in midlife, they look at their circumstances and they're like, my kids need that extra bedroom right? And maybe their kids don't need their extra bedroom. They need a dad that's come alive, right? They need a dad that doesn't come home every night and drink a six pack because he's so miserable. They'll remember a dad that's really living by example, by being passionate and, and interested in things. And I understand that balancing that with basic needs 
is impossible, right? If this were easy, then everyone would be doing it. And I worry there are certain aspects of society and our society that are deliberately working against that, the, the need for health insurance and employment, right? Like mm-hmm. you couldn't structure a worse system for entrepreneurship yeah. in the middle range, right? There are certain things about the American system that stop people from exploring. Mm-hmm. But the second point that what determines human flourishing, in, me, in my opinion, is it's the ability to switch between explore and exploit really quickly. So it's like, okay, I found something that's interesting to me. I'm going to jump to that stepping stone. Oh, you know what? That was bad. I shouldn't do that. I was That, that was a big mistake. I'm going to switch back to something else. And you can switch on and off really quickly so that you don't get tied into bad situations too fast. Yeah. And how that relates to income, not quite clear to me, but it's certainly something I see in a lot of other people. I, I love the the Carl Jung quote you you stated there, and we know that we don't live by bread alone, right? We know that we have needs that are that are psychological and spiritual as well as 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 putting food on the table. So, in addition to taking care of your kids physically, you've got to show them, you know, a life worth living. I, I love that. So let's jump to the third stage of of Campbell's model, which is supernatural aid. Uh, wherein a magical helper appears and gifts the hero with the tools and talismans uh, that they need to take on this journey, right? This is Harry Potter getting the magic wand in Diagon Alley. This is Luke getting the the lightsaber and the training from Obi-Wan. Obviously, and uh, this is quite a bummer for me, but this is not forthcoming for us in the most literal of ways, but a real theme of your work is the integration of conscious and unconscious ways of thinking and being. Uh, Can you talk about your fascination with this synthesis and how this synthesis equips us with the tools we need uh, to make life's journey? Yeah, I think it's kind of the whole ballgame for me right now. And this is where I'm going to incinerate my credibility with your audience. Um, There's the concept of the synchronicity, which is something we don't fully understand, but Jung talked about a lot, which is basically the way I interpret it is when you're when you're close to the right flow, right? When you've made the right stepping stone, there's a coincidence. And I think our modern reductive perception of consciousness is that we exist very separate from our environment, right? That the the, the universe is indifferent to us and there's no conversational relationship. And yet my experience over the last few years when I've been living much more in flow is that I do regularly get meaningful coincidences. And I do regularly get signals when I'm going on the right and the wrong path, Right. And so this kind of concept of magical helpers, maybe nothing more than our environment signaling to us that we're moving in a, in a positive direction. So like, I appreciate that's going to be fairly difficult for people to understand, but I think it's important. And actually a big part of that has been making space within our conscious bandwidth, right? Say our consciousness is always running at 100%, right? If we can make space in our lives through practices that that amplify the impact of the unconscious, that creates a space for external signals to come in from our environment, and those are often very important guiding signals. If you're working, if you're working a hundred hour week, and you don't have time to think, and you don't have time to reflect, and you don't have time to do these practices, you can end up walking down a blind alley. And you know, turning around in, in, at 45 and have no idea where you are, or get blown open by the unconscious trying to get your attention in terms of like these psychosomatic ailments. So I would rather not be not be destroyed, and I would rather do things like mindfulness, cold water exposure. Like uh, for me, it's boundary periods where like I, I use the period between sleeping and waking to come up with new ideas. 
But basically, there's a squirreling of these different things, and I've written about them, where it's like, how can I make space in my psyche for more external input to do the kind of magical helping that you're talking about? And so for you, just, you know, the the textbook exa- example of synchronicity from Jung is this, this story he talks about what he's he's talking to a patient and they're relating a dream about a beetle and then a beetle flies through the window and it's this type of beetle that wasn't native to the area. And it was this sort of special uh, just just nod from the universe, I guess, that this 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 client was was on the right path. Is that how do you use these sort of. Uh, moments of the universe winking at you to say, yeah, like I'm on the right path or I'm, I'm, I'm not on the right path? Yes, absolutely. And for me, it's like, and, and for a lot of people I've worked with, in case anyone thinks I've gone completely mad, I work with a lot of people in transition uh, and I've been studying this for a long period of time, is what will happen is they'll take a step. Uh, usually we have to take the first step for whatever reason. And once they've taken the first step, a door will open somewhere else that was nowhere near what they were expecting for their next opportunity, but ends up leading them to an incredible place. And it's just weird how it seems to happen every single time. And for me, it's mostly people that I'll reach out to people whose work I really resonate with, or people will contact me out of the blue. It, it just it, it happens that it feels like this kind of four-dimensional information landscape that I'm navigating, where the, the more on the beam I am, the more crazy coincidences I'll get. And my wife is like hyper-rational. But I'm, I think even she can see that I'm getting like, you know, like six a week sometimes. And they're all tiny. There's never enough in them to be like, well, that's a decisive sign from the universe. They're always like little winks and nods. But I do notice a correlation between those and when I'm when I'm on my beam. It's uh, I like I like this this metaphor of being on the beam. It's something I it's something I struggle with. Um as a scientist, but also as, you know, a person who wants to believe that, you know, there, there's, there's more out there than what you can touch, taste and feel. I'm trying to, trying to be upbeat about these wings from the universe, but then sort of fighting the, fighting that tension between, you know, sort of absolute nihilism where, you know, everything just happens for no reason and sort of silly magical thinking where everything is a sign. I I don't know that we're going to come up with the answer today, but it, it is, I think we've all had that experience of being in a flow state where it just seems like the right people are coming across, across your path. Things are clicking and, you know, finding that tension between belief and disbelief, I think is a, is a lifelong struggle, but, but maybe a fun one. I have the same thing, which is like, you know, am I seeing the the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast? Yeah. You know, like, or or am I being like, nothing means anything total nihilism? And I run into a lot of people on both ends of the spectrum. There's a lot of people that are really great at mytholo- mythological analysis that now think the world is run by lizard people because they apply the same pattern recognition skills on narrative to things they don't understand. So staying within your circle of competence and also having that somatic sense for what's meaningful. I guess I'd, I'd, I'd summarize it, which is the sense of what's meaningful. So Jung called the meaningful synchronicities, right? That felt sense of whether the direction you're on is meaningful. So like people misinterpret this, which is like the Kardashians get a lot of attention, right? Why aren't they following your bliss, right? I'm like, well, does consuming that content feel meaningful, right? Like, do you feel better after you've spent an hour doom scrolling, right? Maybe for some people, yes, but for most people, probably not, right? And it's, again, does that coincidence really genuinely feel meaningful or are you tr- are you just reaching to try and find something that isn't there? 
Yeah. No, I love it. So we're going to fast forward to the sixth of Campbell's uh, stages, which is the road of trials. And this is something I'm a big Viktor Frankl fan. This is something I think about a lot. And, and this is where the hero is tested as part of their transformation. And, and I want to think uh, for uh, think and speak with you for a moment about how hardship can and ought to shape our own journey. So the idea that everything happens for a reason is pretty gross, I think, if if you actually think about it very much. And yet we see in the lives of people like Frankel that even the most horrific events can lead to immense growth. So I guess, what is the difference between pain and hardship that, that catalyzes further growth and, and pain that, that paralyzes or debilitates? Yeah, well, I'm a great open question. So I wish I had a better idea of it right now. And I've been talking to lots of people about this is how much suffering is required in any hero's journey, right? Like, if you end up in the gulag for 15 years, are you Alexander Solzhenitsyn, write a book and bring down the Soviet Union, right? Or however Mandela was in prison for, if he was in prison for one year, would Mandela be Mandela? You know, like, is there a linear relationship here? Like, I genuinely don't know. And I'm, I'm super curious about it. There's a framing that Perhaps it's a little esoteric, but I think about it all the time, which is um, the exploit instinct, which is at its worst part, is sacrificing life for power, right? So if you're, you're earning a million dollars, but you're completely dry inside, you are sacrificing your life for power, right? And it's the, it's the purest definition of evil. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's you sacrificing your life for life, right? That's your, you're basically willing to put yourself in a degree of discomfort or psychological distress in order to bring forth life. So I think about that as what the hero is willing to do. And this was true of like the shaman and shamanistic cultures is they're willing to put themselves through this hero's trial and through this conflict with, you know, whatever you want to call it, the exploit instinct, the, uh, the dragon, whatever it is, right? in order that they can come back to their community with this message, with this, with this ability to heal, they're willing to put themselves through this very, very risky journey of the ant that goes off on a different path. So maybe everyone doesn't have to do it, but certain members of the community do. Mm. Sure. So I want to go to the, uh, one of the next stages. The next stage is the ultimate boon, which is the achievement of the goal of the quest. It's why you went on the journey in the first place. You and I, just by virtue of our occupations, we're both proximal to lots of super successful people. Many of them are, of course, very happy, but many of them are not as, as happy as I think you would expect, given their professional and, and other attainments. The ultimate boon, you know, for, for all these folks seem to have won, they don't always act like they have won, right? How can we make this better in our own lives when we achieve that ultimate boon, when we, when we sort of grasp the golden ring, how can we have it feel like a win and how can we avoid that hedonic treadmill? Yeah, I mean, I wish it's sort of you're asking what the, what the meaning of life is. And I, I, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I kind of had a, a, a good answer. I, what I would say is that um, a great framing for me is what William Green, um, who's sort of right. Uh, wrote Richard Weiser happier. He's, he's a huge, huge thinker on the topic of kind of where spirituality meets finance. And he, he's described it as, um, as being a clean pipe. That basically you allow whatever life is to flow through you 
in a in a very kind of unfettered way. And I I think about people within that context now that like you can be a super wealthy successful person and be completely blocked off to life, right? And, the, and in fact, the richer you get, the more isolated you get because you have to fly private. You have to have your own chauffeur. You have these huge penthouses, you know, isolated from the rest of the city. You live on these huge estates and 8,000 square foot houses where there's no one else in there who's close to you, right? Like it's almost, it's almost farcical. But there are also lots of incredibly rich people I know that are fabulously happy because they use their money as a way of, um, of bringing more life into their life. And they use it as a, a, a stable platform to run experiments for them to find different stepping stones to pursue things in their lives. So, you know, money isn't a good or bad thing in any kind of like static way. And I think looking at it that way is very, very reductionist. But it, it, it's the, the, the concept of the Taoist sage is basically, I think, what we should all be aspiring to which is where you have this sort of perfect balance of explore exploit of conscious and unconscious. And that's what I was trying to get to in that, that long form article I write about that one big idea, which is where the Taoist sage is so perfectly aligned with his environment that he'll get these external cues and then he'll act instantly and decisively in exactly the right time in exactly the right way in such a way that he's always flowing in this beautiful conversational reciprocal way with the world around him. And he's always on his beam and he's always going in the right direction because he's just so micro attuned. But those people that are micro attuned have to be incredibly open to the outside world, right? In a way that a lot of people, a lot of people that have accumulated fantastic wealth because they're, they're trying to deal with some trauma that probably prevents them from being fully open and vulnerable to the world. So that's where the correlation becomes problematic. But I think certainly the endpoint where you can you can get to a point where you're flowing really, really close to the, to, to life itself. And the closer you flow to life itself, the better. That's based on being very, very decisive in terms of your own egoic action, but also super open to everything coming on around you. So riffing on this, you know, being isolated in the penthouse, right? And, you know, Elon Musk responded to, to one of my tweets recently, and that was a very funny day for me. But he was talking about going to the movies and missing being able to go to the movies. And I was like, oh, that's really sad, right? To, to have all this, and yet you can't just on Saturday take an afternoon and go down to the matinee without getting mobbed. What's the role of other people in this journey, right? Campbell has this idea of rescue from without where supernatural aid sort of others come and, and help us on the on the road back home. What's the role of other people in, in crafting this heroic journey? Yeah, I, well, okay, so let's go back to myth, right? So um, I used to, used to mock my wife a lot for liking, you know, real housewives. And it, it certainly is the case that... Um, we seem to be really interested in gossip. Uh, Robin Dunbar came up with a stat that 60% of human conversation is gossip. Mm. And the reason why is that understanding the people around us is existentially important. Mm. Because if there's one guy that's like a murderer or like a serial cheater, we need to, to throw that person out of the tribe really fast. Mm. And so understanding those dynamics uh, seem trivial to us now, but they're, they're far from trivial. So that's why that kind of content grabs our attention. The relevance of that statement to your question is basically one of the iron laws I keep running into in every context is Dunbar's number, which is, for listeners who aren't familiar, it's basically the idea that 
the optimal human unit is about 150 people. It's the, the number of people that you can basically know well and also that can know each other. And it was typically the size of most hunter-gatherer tribes. Mm-hmm. So basically, like beyond 150 people, you have to use abstractions like that guy's a Jets fan or you know, that guy's a Liverpool fan or whatever it is, right? And once you create abstractions to people, it's very, it's very easy to dehumanize them and to do you know, very, very bad things to your question about the problem of evil. So like when I look at who thrives and why, they tend to have this tribal unit of 150 people that's very, very, very important in their lives. And I think the problem, I don't know what Elon Musk's personal situations are. The problem with a lot of celebrities that I've come to know is that they don't know who's in their life for what reason. They don't have a theory of mind of the people in their lives, right? Is that is this person actually friends with me because they like me or are they friends with me because I'm worth a squillion dollars and they get status from being friends with me? Mm-hmm. So basically no one no one actually can get an accurate theory of the tribe around them and they don't even really know how many people are in that tribe. In fact, really high personal networks are associated with depression mm-hmm. in that you, have, you know 4,000 people, but you actually have no friends which is something you see a lot in, in you know, very, very famous people. And Dunbar's number actually is, is sort of a more, a slightly more complicated in that it's typically you have one and a half close friends, you have five um, really kind of close support group, you have 15 pretty close, you have 45 like people you'd invite to a barbecue, and you have 150 people at your wedding. And that kind of scaling up is important. But we also spend dramatically more time with that five than we do with the 150. So all of this comes down to how much of your life are you paying attention to those 150 people and in what distribution? And if you're filling those slots with like celebrities who you don't know, that's a warning sign. But it certainly seems that like the robustness of your personal relationships correlates with everything that's important from your health downwards. Yeah. If I, you know, when, when I look at the mental health research, if I, if I had just one sort of factor to pick to make someone mentally well, it's going to be relationships all day long. So Tom, this has been incredible. I'm, I'm so happy to meet people like you who are in finance, but sort of not of finance, I guess, and, and are doing, and are doing work that, that helps us think about how to take the money we've invested and earned and use it and, and put it towards something bigger. If people want to read your work or follow your work, where can folks find you? Sure. Uh, thank you. It's, uh, it's uh, the kcpgroup.com. Uh, the insight section is my ramblings. Uh, you can sign up there. Uh, I write every, uh, twice a month. Uh, I also interview uh, the most interesting people I can find, uh, maybe once a quarter, a couple of times a year, when someone really comes across my radar that I think is saying something incredibly meaningful. Uh, so if your listeners, there's someone that fits that category, let me know. Uh, and then also I'm, uh, I'm probably too active on Twitter, um, much to my wife and children's dismay. Um, I'm Tom underscore Morgan KCP. Uh, love it if you could marginally add to my follower account. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been, been great talking to you. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. 
The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.